Yeah, they had us the first half, I'm not gonna lie. They had us, we weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts, it took an attitude, that's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. And that's what our coach told us, he said, it's the media. They got something to Hello say and welcome the to the, the second season of the Off Court Podcast, the podcast that explores the critical political economy of sports. My name is Aton Tobin, I am joined as always by my co-host, Abdul Malik. So we are here, me and Aton are here with uh, Jules Boykoff and Gigi Drosh, uh, both of whom have been involved in No Olympics uh, advocacy and organizing for quite a while now. Thank you both so much for coming on. Uh, why don't you introduce yourselves? Go for it, Gigi. I'm Gigi. I've um, been organizing with No Olympics LA for about a um, little over a year now. We're a group in Los Angeles that uh, opposes um, any Olympics, not just Los Angeles. Um, and um, we're fighting, uh, basically we're fighting for the people to have the right to the city and the use of the city and not giving, we don't want to give the city over to a bunch of wealthy um, land developers and corporations for two weeks. Um, so that's what we're fighting for. Uh, yeah, my name is Jules Boykoff and I first got involved around anti-Olympic struggles back in 2010. I live in Portland, Oregon, and just up the road in Vancouver, there was a vigorous pushback against the 2010 Winter Olympics there. And I actually learned about it through poetry circles. A lot of my friends in Vancouver are poets and activists, and they said, you got to get up here. I'd been writing about repression, state repression for a decade prior to that. And they said, we have a real repression story for you here, all these special laws that are getting passed and everything. So I went up there, checked it out, and there was just a whole lot more going on than repression. There's plenty of repression, don't get me wrong. And so I just kind of sunk my teeth in and never really turned back. I moved to London in around the 2012 Olympics and lived there. I, I learned Portuguese and moved to Rio de Janeiro in 2015, lived there and lead up to those Olympics. And here we are as we approach Tokyo 2020, still following along as best I can and super interested in what's happening just down the road for me in Los Angeles. I think there's something really special going on in terms of the type of organizing we see there. Yeah, it's the the Vancouver games, like the scars of those games on the city are really interesting because like, you know, um, I was there not too long ago with the, you know, labor union stuff. And I heard like the second gentrification of the Olympic Village had just happened where they basically killed what was left of the affordable housing that... um was stuck over and stuff like that. And it had all been converted into breweries and people had been forced out. There was like one or two buildings, literally just one or two that were really left uh, as part of the affordable housing initiative. And even when you go to like Montreal, right? Like now it's it's all been finally converted into, <laughs> uh, you know, community centers and public space. But also like so much of that city was shaped by the Olympics. You can make a, I think, very compelling argument that was in the worst possible way. So, like, you know, it's been a, a insane year. I think it just goes without saying. You know, this is this is for both of you because you're in the know. Like, what what has been the state of no Olympics organizing since COVID began? Um, what's it like dealing with Garcetti when he's uh, pretending to deal with a pandemic? Right? Like, what's uh, what's all that like for you? It's it's been a lot different this year. Um, when I started organizing with no Olympics, we were doing a lot of um, canvassing and door-to-door -door organizing, um, especially in Hollywood. Um, so in Hollywood, that's where a lot of the hotels are going to be built for the Olympics. And they're already 
evicting people. Um, there's actually a law in Los Angeles, um, I think all of California, um, called the Ellis Act, where if you want, if you own a building and you want to get out of the landlord business, you can basically evict all your tenants. Um, and that's used a lot to actually not get out of being um, a landlord. Uh, I, I guess you're not a landlord anymore, but now you're a hotel developer. Um, so that's been being used to um, evict people uh, in order to put hotels in. And through that, we d- uh, discovered that Airbnb was also uh, being used in a lot of these homes. Um, so a lot of homes were being converted into hotels just through um, Airbnb. And so that's a lot of the um, Olympics resistance that we were fighting before COVID. It's been a little bit harder to do that kind of campaigning since uh, we don't want to go to door, door to door right now with uh, the pandemic. We don't want to spread the virus to everybody. Um, but we've been recently getting a little bit back um, into that more. Um, a lot of the last year, are, um, we've been focusing more on policing um, with the uprisings here in Los Angeles. Not they're not as uh, they're not as intense as they got up in Portland. Well, maybe a little bit into this weekend, um, but that's been one of the things that we've been working on a lot lately is uh, like the intersection between housing and policing, um, especially with Echo Park Lake this weekend. Um, for people who don't know, um, there's a park in Los Angeles, Echo Park Lake, that had a um, really incredible, vibrant community of unhoused uh, people living along the side of the lake. They created like beautiful, like uh, community of mutual aid um, when they needed to put in showers and they weren't able to get the city to bring um, the mobile shower units over um, to Echo Park. They built their own showers. They built their own kitchen. It was just like just like a great community, um, a really positive place, an example of people working together in this pandemic when the city wouldn't do anything for them. And um, unfortunately, as usually happens with these kind of things, the city couldn't have people um, living peacefully without the without coming in. And um, they basically uh, cleared the encampment away under the guise of park uh, renovations and uh, had a police force come in to violently remove the um, unhoused individuals who were living there and also um, some organizers who were and activists who were there with them, um, their allies. So it was, it's been a pretty uh, police heavy focused year, um, a lot of housing too. Either of you heard from uh, No Olympics chapters in other cities uh, sort of globally dealing with similar issues or, or you know, you know, do you know what, what they're going through as well? Um, is it close to what you are? Well, funny enough, actually, in Tokyo in 2016, um, and they're not, they're not exactly chapters where um, we, all the other Olympic or anti-Olympics groups, um, it's not like we're all under one umbrella. Um, we all just sort of work together. Um, the one in, uh, one of the anti-Olympics groups in Tokyo um, is brings up um there's there was um a park actually in tokyo that they used the exact same um strategy that they're using right now in echo park and i I think jules probably knows a little bit more about that um but in 20 it's like looking at the footage from 2016 in tokyo and the footage of this weekend and last week it, it could be the same thing i was um i was actually there in 2017 uh with um, yeah, I, I, they're not chapters, but you know the the anti Olympic movement there because 
you know, I know if you know if you've seen this, Jules, uh, where like the the sort of um, leftist part of Tokyo is, you know, that one street uh, where it's it's also the gay district at the same time. I, I think it's called Cafe Lavenderia. You know, great great place there. Um, but yeah, they were they were still sort of uh, talking about you know the 2016 removal and uh, ongoing like organize the homeless campaigns happening around there i hope they're doing well i don't know uh yeah i get the email for the free benefit concert from time to time but um you know obviously i can't read japanese so i mean if you know yeah jules do you know what's what's been happening recently yeah well there there has been continued pressure on the unhoused population in places like yoyogi park and that's not different than other olympics that tend to target the poor I'm talking to you from the United States here in Atlanta in 1996. They basically bought one-way bus tickets for the unhoused residents of Atlanta and said, just get out of the city. And and basically, it's sort of um, what some scholars have called a a cleansing of the city, if you will, before the Olympics happen. So there's like a long and ignominious history of uh, displacing the poor out of the city. And the unhoused residents are definitely part of that. I mean, what's interesting, there's so many things that are interesting about what Gigi's talking about. Um, For starters, the guy who was kind of overseeing the displacement of those folks in Echo Park and Echo Park Lake is the name Mitch O'Farrell. And he's also one of the honchos when it comes to LA 28. So there's a linkage there between trying to clean up, quote unquote, the city and uh, make it glamorous and and camera ready for the tourists to descend upon the city. And so I think this is kind of actually one of the main trends that we see when it comes to the history of the Olympics is the displacement of of poor folks and the recreation of the city for the advantage of the already rich. And so if you're looking at LA, if you're looking at Tokyo, uh, you see similar type of processes. In Tokyo, they actually changed the local ordinances so you could build higher in the city And that was to allow those who are developers there to add on to their buildings and extract more rent from the population. They booted people out of an apartment complex called the Kasumi Gaoka apartment complex when I was there in 2019 uh, with the people from No Olympics LA for the first annual Anti-Olympic Summit. I had the good fortune of going down and meeting these people who were displaced by uh, the 2020 Olympics. I went with Dave Zirin, a guy who I write with quite a lot. He's the editor at the Nation Magazine. And we met with three people who are displaced not only by the 2020 Olympics, but also by the 1964 Olympics. The same people displaced twice by two different Olympics. And I'll tell you, they wouldn't even allow us to take photographs or use their real names for fear of getting retribution from the local population for having the temerity to speak out about getting displaced by multiple Olympics. So this is a bit of an Olympic tradition, not the ones that they at the IOC want to tell us about, but they're definitely Olympic traditions nonetheless. One of the one of the things I'm struck by um, across the global no Olympics movement is the creativity. <laughs> I think that that no Olympics activists embody. Um, one of the things that struck me a lot uh, in Japan was was some of the organizers were telling me like, yeah, we were having protests and then we get arrested or the cops would come and beat us. So we started recruiting. And one of the guys who was with me was was an Australian gentleman who, you know, lived in Japan with his, with his Japanese wife. He said, yeah, I was recruited by these guys because 
you know, Gaijin have a bit more latitude when it comes to dealing with police, right? So he says, you know, when we did a banner drop uh, in apartments that were, um, you know, right by where they were building the surfing stadium in Okinawa, I think it was Okinawa, um, you know, it was it was all Gaijin who were dropping the banner to say, you know, no Olympics in Tokyo. And the cops came and talked to us. And they actually let us keep the banner up. They're just like, oh, yeah, crazy white guys, right? Like, they're not Japanese. It's it's okay. And I'm like, man, it takes a lot of, of like, forethought and an organizing aptitude to sort of identify those opportunities, right? And like, what have has COVID at the very least presented an opportunity to find sort of these new avenues for organizing and direct action that you might not have seen before uh, around no olympics la or or if you've even seen them in the global movement um one thing actually that i've found um we've been doing a lot of teach-ins this year with our allies from around the world we actually had um a transnational teach-in series um and because all of our meetings are on zoom and all of our teach-ins would be on zoom it was actually um uh, it was actually kind of easier to um get our allies from around the world involved in the teach-ins. So we had teach-ins with um, our allies from South Korea and from London and Tokyo. Um, and we had one with the Lennox Inglewood Tenants Unit here in Los Angeles. So I do think that there have been some, uh, you know, embracing Zoom and new technologies. Um, that's been, I think, brought to the forefront um, with COVID. And then I think a lot of people have just become more aware of how more, more aware of how the city is using their resources and how they probably, I think there's a lot of people who haven't really thought very hard about how the city and um, how California and even the country um, allocates resources and what they use them towards. And I think COVID um, and the uprising this summer has brought that to people's forefront. And I, I think getting people to think about, oh, like, things don't have to be this way. We don't have to value policing. And um, we could actually do something else with all this energy and resources and time. Instead of having a giant Olympics, we could, you know, get people in housing. We could even like get broadband internet or so many things that the city could do instead of the Olympics. We could sit here all day thinking of things the city could do instead of the Olympics. Oh, hundred um, percent. Especially right now with with the deficits that cities are running up due to COVID, right? Yeah, I have a quick question, sort of related to that. I guess um, this one's a little bit more generalized. I apologize. I'm here more so to learn. Um, Abdul is sort of leading the research for this one, but I am just curious. Um, just discussing the resources of cities and having seen also what happened to Vancouver firsthand. I have a lot of family there. Do you, is there any viability in the notion of a single location Olympics? Is that something that the no Olympics chapter has discussed at all? Like I've seen pr propositions that are, you know, the solution to wasted infrastructure constantly being built is you select some kind of international location for specialty sports you know it couldn't obviously be athens for the winter but something along those lines is that something that the the chapter discusses that's that's something you know to even expand on that that's been proposed i'm trying to remember who but it came up around the time of the 2012 games where it was like mm -hmm. turn athens into a hub city for global right. sport right uh with permanent infrastructure and stuff like that like in in your eyes is that you know, uh, in a world where capitalism at this point is, uh, you know, inevitable, 
um, mm-hmm. and you look at at uh, you know Olympic uh, anti Olympic movements as you know participating in both abolition and and pushing for harm reduction. Like, what does that sound like as an idea to to you? Well, yeah, I mean, I can I can respond. I don't know if um, you know. There's a specific response out of Los Angeles. The 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 whole slogan "No Olympics Anywhere" kind of answers the the, the mm-hmm. question. It's and that's what's been really interesting to me as someone who's followed the anti-Olympics activists for, for more than a decade now is that Los Angeles has definitely taken this very hard line on the Olympics, no Olympics anywhere for, because of all the negative externalities that the Olympics bring, no question. Um, certainly I've been in, in circles where people have presented the idea of locating the Olympics in one place. Usually it's Athens is what they suggest. Uh, or in a small number of four, say five cities that rotate. Um, I think that maybe there's a conversation to have around that. The only thing is you'd have to get it ratified by the International Olympic Committee, which has shown zero interest whatsoever in rotating cities, let alone anchoring them in one place like Athens. Second, the people of Athens, I'm not sure how keen they are, to be perfectly honest, with bringing the Olympics. (laughs) Remember the last time they had them in 2004, it was a, a herd of white elephants in their wake and all these fountains that are never used. The softball field looks like, you know, covered in weeds and dust. And so, you know, you might have some convincing to do on the Athens front. Then think about this. If you did go the, the route of the four to five cities that rotated uh, over time, the thing about stadiums and stadiums changing and, and upgrading all the time, you might still come across the same problems that plague the Olympics today and still having to build. Take Atlanta. I mentioned 1996 is when they hosted the Olympics. They just rubbled the stadium in 2016 that they made fresh for the Olympics in 1996. So we're talking 20 years later. They got rid of the stadium. It was seen as a stadium dinosaur. And so if you rotated back, you have your five cities, you rotate back to Atlanta, your stadium's a fossil and you're already, you know, you're still in the same situation where you're destroying um, stadia. You might move it to a different part of town, displace more people. So the Olympics uh, and those who run the Olympics are basically sort of a peripatetic band of grifters. And they know that travel is part of the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're going to have a heck of a time. They'd have to be the ones that would make the decision. And I just do not see that happening among that crowd. I, I think too, um, a lot of the issues would only, um, so I, in Olympics LA, what we think about a lot is um, like that uh, the people in the city who are living there, the working people were the ones who should have the right to the city. We're the ones who should um, be controlling what, uh, what, public spaces are used for and um, also the public spaces should be used for everybody. And I think kind of an example of what the Olympics in one city would look like if you think about like Disneyland here in Los Angeles, um, which everybody loves, you know, everyone loves going to Disneyland. Um, But if you look into kind of what Disney has done to the city of Anaheim and the way they've taken over local politics there, it's like Disney runs the entire city. Um, they really kind of have their iron fist on everything. And so if you put the Olympics in one city, you'd be dooming like an entire city to be basically under the thumb of the IOC. The IOC would, in essence, control an entire city. And I wouldn't want to do that to the people who live there. Um, so I think the even if we just put it in one place, that would um, it would it would be like, as Jules was saying, we'd, they'd have to update things super often. And probably the IOC would just take over the city sort of you know to to go to the idea of you know right to the city and the work that you're doing in LA um you know the terminally online so to speak will criticize the DSA and constituent DSA chapters uh, for being either 
too social democratic or subject to infighting or completely ineffectual, but like, you know, Jules, I read No Olympians. I love that book. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there's lots of great people doing work with the D with DSA chapters across uh, the U S right. Definitely more, I would say movement as what is happening in Canada right now uh, among our social Democrats or further left than that. But you know, what, what do you think makes uh, Gigi? Do you think makes the DSA LA chapter so effective, or do you just think these criticisms universally are are unfair? I think that my problem with a lot of the terminally online DSA conversation is that DSA is a very big organization, and this isn't like I'm not uh, for, I'm not speaking on behalf of No Olympics as much as starting off with just my opinion. DSA is a very big organization. There are a lot of chapters and it is difficult to, if if there's one person online who's saying something and they've never been to a DSA meeting or went to one DSA meeting in their city, um, they, or even if they're very active in their city, they don't know what's going on in other cities. Um, DSA is a huge organization. Even in DSA LA, we're a huge chapter there are um, a very wide range. It's, it's a big tent organization. There's a wide range of political opinions um, throughout our chapter. I think if you talk to somebody who's in, um, I don't want to, I don't want to start a fight. So I'm trying to think of a, just let's say if there's like a environmental committee um, in DSALA, um, they might have totally different, uh, if there's no overlap between like that and no Olympics, they might have totally different ideas about how things are done. Um, you know, like uh, no Olympics LA, we don't we don't get involved in electoral politics. That's not what we do in no Olympics. Obviously, DSA as a whole gets involved in electoral politics. Uh, DSA LA gets uh, gets involved in electoral politics. There's an entire electoral politics committee. Um, so I think it's just kind of sometimes difficult to paint with an entire broad brush what DSA is uh, doing, because DSA is a lot of different things. Um, and I don't know if that quite answers your question. I think it does. I mean, like, I I really don't have much in the way of a comparator to the DSA, right? Like in Canada, we have the New Democratic Party, which is uh, also, you know, a purely electoral force. It has no real insurgent chapter to speak of or the the superstructure you know, completely defangs any insurgent, you know, socialist caucuses or whatever. Like the DSA is endlessly fascinating from, you know, sort of where we're sitting up here because it it represents, I think, both like a form of, of dual power and a, fo- a way to like hijack electoral mechanisms without, ideally without being absorbed into the electoral mechanism of the Democratic Party, right? Um and it's also very interesting that the the DNC rejects it, right? Here, the NDP likes to hijack the energy. Yeah, we're going to move left. We're going to move left. We're going to adopt these reforms. Oh, you know, jokes on you. We're not going to. So yeah, it's 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 interesting from like a perspective of like a being terminally online. You know, having that contradiction in terms of like, well, you know, what you write about Jules, or what you hear from people who you, you who are your friends in the states who actively are involved with uh, more local DSA chapters and you see the work that they're doing sort of organizing, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, the democratic socialists of America are the most exciting mass formation on the left happening right now in the United States. And 
um, part of what for me is exciting about it is exactly what Gigi was highlighting is that there's just incredible variegation and independence among chapters. I think that's the right path at this point. I mean, I wish the left were a lot stronger in the United States, but we're just not right now. And so you have to do that big tent thing uh, if you want to start massing numbers. I mean, look, the DSA at the national level is getting to be almost 100,000 people. I think it's 92,000 in January. And so that's pretty significant growth. I mean, when I started writing the book that you mentioned, Abdul, and Olympians, it was more like 60,000. I mean, that's pretty fast growth. And I only started that book a couple of years ago. And what I think the DSA does really well is tries to follow the three prongs that Megan Day and Micah Utrecht uh, put out in their book about DSA and how that related to Bernie. And that was one, um, trying to raise expectations to try to platform ideas that expand the conception of what's possible. I definitely see that happening in Los Angeles with the No Olympics LA group and DSA more widely. Second, they talk about engaging in class polarization uh, with the elites of the city at the same time as trying to build worker class unity. That's definitely happening. I think No Olympics LA has done a brilliant job of targeting particular elites in the city and using that to generate momentum on the street. And last, they talk about if you are going to engage in electoral stuff, then it has to be a class struggle brand of electoral politics that leaves the movement stronger than they were when you started. You might not win. I mean, it's hard to win. It's uphill all the time in the United States to win big elections. But you can leverage these elections even when your candidate loses to make your organization stronger. And so I see all of that happening in various places, whether it's Portland or Los Angeles, even though they have a concertedly sort of off-putting stance toward uh, electoral politics in general. There are plenty of people in D uh, DSA LA that were pretty darn excited about Nithya Rahman, for example, getting elected to the city council. And so because the resources are relatively scarce, you got to use them smart. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing around the country right now with DSA. But I would just say bigger picture, it's very exciting what's possible with DSA in the United States right now. I think your last question is was painted by the way, Abdul. I was going to say by Twitter, unfortunately. You know, it that's is, sort of yeah. our our one way view into the DSA's activity, especially in New York, where a lot of them seem to be very online. And it's unfortunate because everything you described and everything I've heard in that notion is amazing about what the DSA is doing in America. And I, you mm -hmm. know, my next question is also informed by by Twitter as well because I've seen. You know, I've seen quite a bit of back and forth on Nithya, right, who looked um, like an exciting candidate. I don't know anything, you know, about her, whether or not, you know, she's been good uh, recently, right? Obviously, <laughs> online, there's a weird diversity of opinion on that. But, you know, you mentioned um, in No Olympians, Jules, you mentioned, you know, sort of pushing politicians to at the very least entertain uh, uh, I would describe as like a, a harm reduction strategy around the Olympics if they're not going to cancel it outright, right? With the goal being to to cancel it outright. I think, like personally, I think COVID has demonstrated sort of the failures of um, our politicians in like a very keen way and their inability to budge on things that are, are so basic, right? Even where I am in Edmonton, like similar to what you were describing, Gigi, we had Camp Pekawewin, which was a a huge camp for unhoused people, especially unhoused indigenous people. Uh, that was, uh, you know, we ended up, there was ended up being some good movement on getting them housed in the convention center, which was going unused due to COVID, but nothing on the movement of like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't give Daryl Cates, you know, a hundred million dollars to build a stadium and uh, right now and uh, demolish 
you know, community services in the process that were right next to the stadium, right? Do you think the last year has demonstrated that it's even worthwhile to find any midway with politicians or to just create alternatives that sort of try to push through and push past them? Um, Because, yeah, you can probably explain this better better than I would ever know, right? I don't know how Nithya has done. I don't know what to look at. If you ask, you you Google, you look up Nithya on Twitter and you'll get 10 people saying she's doing her best and 10 people saying she sucks. Well, actually, I guess one... One thing that's kind of exciting about city council that um, I guess this was a few weeks ago now, um, the COPSEC vote. Um, so uh, whenever for a little bit of background, whenever a um, when there's an NSSE, which is a national special security event, um, which is basically uh, an event where like the Olympics, like the Super Bowl, all of um, all of law, all the law enforcement agencies and NSSE collaborate with each other. They work together. So that means ICE is working with LAPD, is working with the FBI, all of the you know all of the worst people in the world working together. There was a vote this week on um, creating um, COPSEC, which would be the organization um, or the entity in Los Angeles um, that would handle this for the um, LA 28 Olympics. Um, and for the first time this week, there was actually discussion on whether or not um, this was the right move. There were two dissenting votes, which doesn't sound like much on a 12-person city council, and it wasn't. But it was also the first time, that, um, and that was Nithya and um, Bonin brought up objections to um, the uh, to COPSEC and um, brought up that, you know, the people in the city have voiced concerns about um, the security apparatus and um, policing. And that was actually kind of exciting. Um, so we've been, you know, um, trying to work with city council when we can. Um, and I, I think there's a there's a difference between engaging in electoralism and pressuring um, politicians. Um, we don't usually engage in electoralism, um, but we do try and pressure politicians when we can. And I think for something like the Olympics, um, that's the route that we're going to have to take to some extent. I, I think that's one one of the routes to canceling the Olympics would be um, through city council. And uh, so I, I think with the state of the power of the left right now, that to some extent, this is what we have to do. We have to pressure politicians, um, maybe on a bigger scale long term. That's not the way that we have to go. But for keeping the Olympics out of Los Angeles. Um, that is one of the strategies I think that we have to partake in. And it's it's working, at least it's starting to. Um, we're having some, some very small wins. I mean, I think that Gigi's raising a really important point when it comes to hosting the Olympics in the United States, there's these national special security events, like you were saying, and this is where you bring all of these federal policing agencies together to police the Olympics. And some listeners right remember the 2019 Super Bowl, where the performer 21 Savage was part of the festivities and he got nabbed by ICE and deported out of the United States. It turns out, I think he's from England or something. And he, was like, he was born yeah. in London, supposedly. Okay. Yes. And yeah, so I mean, like, that's what can happen. We can sort of like, you know, chuckle about it because he's relatively affluent and I'm sure he's doing just fine now, 21 Savage. But there are lots of people that don't have the famous names that will not have such a, a positive outcome in the end uh, that will have a, a terrible ice experience. 
and they'll use the Olympics as a, a way of patrolling and trolling and trawling for people to deport. And, you know, that's another huge theme that Gigi's pointing us to of hosting the Olympics is you are basically inviting the full throttle militarization of your city to protect the Olympic spectacle. And in the United States, the NSSE uh, creates an additional complication. And so to have a couple people on city council to say no to this new formation of the security apparatus for the city, for the Olympics, I think is significant, especially when you look back at past votes in the LA city council. I mean, it's been a rubber stamp factory every step of the way. And so now you have two people who are at least going to listen to you. You have an uh, upcoming mayoral election where who knows, maybe you can start thinking about running somebody who has questions about the Olympics. That certainly worked in a place like Rome that was at one point talking about the 2024 Olympics and hosting that. And then along comes Virginia Raggi, who ran on a platform of opposing the Olympics. It wasn't like the only thing on her platform, but she was definitely like a no Olympian on her platform. And she won. And guess what? The bid was crushed right there in the cradle. And so lots is possible when there's an election happening in, in the near term future and you have a couple leverage points within city council. I'm not too Pollyannish about it. Don't get me wrong. I think it's still a massive uphill struggle. Um, but whereas these leverage points didn't even exist, you know, a few weeks ago, now they do in Los Angeles. And it's because of uh, Nithya Raman and uh, Mike Bonin who, who voted against this particular formation of security. That's that's exciting to hear, because like, you know, here in uh, just south of me in Calgary, you know, they they got the new stadium built or, you know, in the process of being built with public funds and the only person running for mayor with the the idea of canceling the you know stadium in progress is also the most reactionary uh city councilor right the one who wants to impose austerity on everything so i feel bad for the voters in calgary right they're stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of like well you know if you save the money on the stadium you're also going to tacitly acknowledge you're going to lose a whole bunch of essential city services right um, but yeah, they haven't found a, a candidate. Uh, there isn't really a candidate worth supporting if you're anti anti stadium, anti sporting infrastructure. There, um, you mentioned referendums, Jules, as a as a method of of you know staving off Olympic bids or even uh, you know post hoc canceling Olympics after they've been bidded on. Um, do you still have confidence in referendums after you know the failures of the Costa Hawkins repeal and Measure B? Um, like, you know, will is the power of capital so strong? Those were for those listening, by the way, those are two uh pretty powerful uh ballot measures that were, you know, taken down by a I would describe an indescribably large amount of money uh poured into it by banks, uh by private capital to convince people not to vote for it. Measure B in particular was the public banking measure. Um do you still think uh, referendums are, are you know, maybe as viable as they were even, you know, as recently as 10, 15 years ago. Gigi, I guess you would also know. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about referendums on the Olympics and leave it to, to Gigi to talk more about kind of on the ground, the possibilities there in Los Angeles. But in general, you know, referenda and ballot measures have become these civic brickbats that people have used to fight back these different bids that have been put forth. Just look at the time period between 2013 and 2018. And there were 14 cities uh, that either had a referendum that said no to the Olympics, threatened a referendum, and they pulled the bid, or had an elected official, like I mentioned, Virginia Raggi, come to power and crush the bid that way. 
14 cities. That includes Calgary, actually, if you include Calgary. So um, that's a lot. That's a lot of pushback. And if you think about the one time in the history of the Olympic Games when a referendum actually forced the Olympics to move locations, that happened in 1976 with the Denver Olympics that never happened because there was a referendum a few years before that that actually had a coalition across the political spectrum. It was fiscal conservatives that might be kind of unseemly in terms of other things that they might like to cut in terms of social programs, combined with those who are concerned with the environments, more left of center environmentalists, and they voted down giving any public money to make the Denver Olympics happen. And the International Olympic Committee knew right then they couldn't do it. I mean, the locals in Denver did as well, and they moved those games to Innsbruck. So there's both a historical reason to think a little bit about referenda, and there's also a more contemporary 21st century reason. Now, the one thing that the International Olympic Committee has done recently, and this is definitely a response to all these bids that have been torpedoed by potential referenda and actual referenda, is they, first of all, did the Hail Mary move of allocating both Paris and Los Angeles at the same time, giving Paris the 2024 Olympics in Los Angeles, the 2028 Olympics. Second, they're now talking about just basically kind of agreeing years and years in advance. I mean, Los Angeles was 11 years in advance. This may become the norm all because of democracy, basically, and people in these various potential bid cities saying, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want to host the Olympics. And so um, there is a larger struggle around this kind of issue And I'd be interested to hear what Gigi has to say. I mean, I've talked to folks in California about the possibilities there. It's not easy to get something on the ballot there either. No, I mean, the referendum is definitely one of our avenues. Um, One of the other avenues that uh, we've been exploring is just making the city of Los Angeles somewhere that is inhospitable to the Olympics, um, somewhere that uh, the Olympics like cannot be held in the city. Um, so creating a smaller police force um, or, uh, you know, not allowing new hotel developments, um, making sure that the public transit projects that are being put through are built to service um, communities that actually use public transit and not um, like tourists who want to go to their hotels. And um, so it, it like, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You want to have a variety of different uh, strategies and one of them will work out. But I think a referendum is definitely a very um, clear and um, easy to wrap your head around way to cancel the Olympics. But there are others as well. Um, because if we if we basically make a city that the IOC can't hold the Olympics in, um, just make a better city, um, then and a city that is for the people that live here and not um, developers, then that's, you know, making the city inhospitable to the Olympics is another avenue um, that we can take. The, you know, you mentioned reducing policing and, and you sort sort of like an anti um, securitization rhetoric around the Olympics. And that's been my actual avenue of research for the last couple of months has been securitization. I think that's one of the things that people don't realize um, about the Olympics for our listeners is that behind the games, there is a marketplace of new security infrastructure, uh, new surveillance techniques, almost all developed by the private sector and funded by governments for these games that they then take and then sell to uh, other countries or, um, you know, private military corporations and stuff like that, like the C4I infrastructure uh, surveillance apparatus for the Athens games is now... I think their last sale was to the U.S. military in South Korea, um, and before that, it was to one of the uh, one of the Gulf 
States. Um, I could have been Saudi Arabia. Don't quote me on that, but it was one of one of the Saudi UAE states, right? Like, there's a whole avenue of power brokerage and commerce that happens uh, at a scale that we could not conceive of behind the games, right? It, it's sort of like in the same way that Davos is, right? For the rich to come and and play and make deals, the Olympics functions um, very similarly, uh, and we don't see a, even a fraction of it. Um, that's a really key point. Can I just jump in there? Oh yeah, quick? absolutely. I think that's another really big theme that that's so important, uh, not just because of the fact that more people in the United States are now thinking about that uh, because of the uprisings that we experienced in the summer and fall of 2020, uh, where people are more open to the possibility of cutting police budgets, but more widely, just like you're saying, Abdul, this is one of the other critical elements of hosting the Olympics. Basically, it becomes a cash machine for private security firms, for local police forces, for federal policing forces to get all the weapons and special laws that they'd never be able to get in normal political times. And they use the state of exception that the Olympics automatically bring to bring in all sorts of new weapons. Look at Tokyo. They're preparing to have facial recognition in every one of the Olympic venues, thereby sort of softening up the public, getting used to it in this sort of friendly celebration capitalism kind of way and then normalizing it for future use. They don't take these facial recognition tools and technologies, put them in back in the box after the Olympics and return them, say, thanks for letting us use them. No, they become a part of uh, regular normalized policing in the wake of these big mega events. And so I think there's more and more people that are, are raising their eyebrows around this stuff right now. And especially in Los Angeles and other places, this is a point of potential pushback. I think just to add on to that, another um a lot of times with these big security apparatuses, what um, people will, or um, what the supporters of security apparatus will mostly center their rhetoric around terrorism. And, um, you know, like we're out here to find terrorists, we're out here to find mass bombers or some, or like a mass shooter. Um, whereas then the technology itself is actually usually used on um, poor people, um, people who are committing petty crimes. Um, they're, you know, used on street sellers or people who I, I think oh, there was a story I was hearing somebody tell they had this like facial recognition um, uh, software that they were saying this is going we're going to be able to use this to tell when people's faces are red which is a, sim a sign that they're going to um, that they're nervous about you know committing to terrorism and then the technology was used to just arrest people who were like publicly drunk um, so the type of crimes that that are being arrested, that are being found and um, targeted for, um, are never the big terrorists. Um, they're always like you know things that a lot of people think actually shouldn't even be illegal. They're used to target poor and working people. I, that's one of the things I found really interesting in Japan too, because I I went there right on the tail end of the smoking ban kicking in, right inside bars and restaurants, and people I was speaking to there were you know quite terrified of how intense the crackdown would be if they went past that, right? Um, recently, I saw articles around surveillance cameras that can track a person based on gait, right? Their their habits of walking um, as a way to sort of circumvent uh, now this new, this new world of masks we're living in um, and stuff like that, right? It's like sort of considering that in the context of you know, how widespread it would become during the Olympics, and especially in a city as policed as L.A., um, is so scary, right? Like, that's something that, that we like to point at to, you know, foreign dictatorships, you know, so to speak, as, as being implement as having implemented. But, like, 
Japan is a very carceral state, right? The U.S. is a very carceral state. Um, you know, no one's sort of exempt from this, like, awful human rights situation that the Olympics brings. Um, one of the things I found really interesting in your book, Jules, and I, I messaged you about this, was sort of this willful disingen disingenuity about uh, the Olympics, right? You mentioned that Renata Simrel talked about the Nike Cortez and held up the Nike Cortez as like, you know, uh, John, John Carlos, like, you know, um, created a new shoe line, iconic shoe line, right? But like in LA, the Nike Cortez has a whole other history of being a shoe affiliated with, say, gang culture, right? Something that Nike has actually pushed as like a form of brand management. Like, you know, it's edgy to wear these shoes that despite the fact that, you know, people have died because of this like of the semiotics of what the Nike Cortez is, do you think that that the people who are pushing for these Olympic Games, it's ultimately a meaningless question, but I'm curious, like, do you think they actually know the damage they're doing? Uh, they obviously don't care, but do you think they actually think they're doing like a public good for the world? Well, first of all, I think that you blew my mind when you told me about the Nike Cortez, because I had no idea that that was the semiotic value of that. And the wider context of what you're talking about was I attended an event got a free ticket. I had just asked as like a scholar, can I get a free ticket? And they were nice enough to give me one. It wouldn't normally cost more than $300 to attend to an event by the LA 84 foundation that benefited from the fact that the Los Angeles 1984 Olympics had a small surplus of around 215 or so million dollars and 90 million or so of those dollars went into the LA 84 foundation. And basically they took that money and they invested it and some pretty shady businesses as well, by the way, sort of the displacement machine, like places um, that, that specialize in financing the buyouts of apartment complexes and booting people onto the streets and evicting them. But so LA 84 has these fancy kind of gala events where they invite all these big name people. And Renata Simril, who you mentioned, is now running the organization. And at the very end, she gave kind of a little bit of a final talk about the, the day's events and what had happened. And she mentioned those shoes everything was fluffy. Nothing was really all that serious. It was kind of this feel-good kind of event um, that was really kind of designed to distract our attention from the more important things and possible critiques. There was only one critical voice that was raised in the entire afternoon, and that was by an aspiring Paralympian who pointed out that things could go horribly wrong in Los Angeles, and this sort of gasp like went across the room. Everyone's like, oh, you see, someone spoke the truth for a second there. Um, <laughs> in terms of like what the people who run the Olympics think, I just really don't know. I mean, like I've gone to events, I've spoken at events in Austria where Thomas Bach was in the front row and had to listen to me uh, speak or where uh, Nawal El Mutawakel, uh, who's a vice president of the IOC, International Olympic Committee, was there as well. And my interaction with them is so limited that I'd have a hard time divining what they think. But if you look at what they say and you take it at face value, they think they're part of a, a much larger enterprise of positivity that's bringing just love and freedom to the world. And, you know, you look at just the rhetoric around the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, they're calling it now a light at the end of the tunnel here. That could actually mean a lot of things, couldn't it? Could be a train about to come right through like a juggernaut and smush uh, Tokyo. But I don't think they quite mean it that way. I think what they mean is uh, there's supposed to be this beacon of positivity in a very difficult world right now. And, you know, it's hard to know how much they actually believe their own rhetoric, but their rhetoric is fluffy. Their rhetoric is lofty. And their rhetoric kind of works, if you think about it, because the Olympics, despite all the stuff we've been talking about, are kind of a popular event. They're not popular when they're happening in your city or your city wants to host the Olympics. But in general, like if you do polling on the Olympics, they do quite well. 
And so that rhetoric tends to carry the day is just when a city like Los Angeles might host the Olympics or a city like Calgary might host the Olympics that people start to get their hackles up. So they're a tough crowd to get to know. And I'm not saying I actually want to get to know the IOC. I value my independence away from them. But they can't possibly be living in a world where they don't read the kind of critical thinking that's happening. You know, I published a couple of essays recently in NBC. I published places, um, other places that they might just happen to read, The Guardian, New York Times, Los Angeles Times. I mean, they probably are coming across this stuff, whether they think I'm totally full of it uh, or they whether they hate me to the core. Uh, you'd have to ask them that. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, they picked either of those paths. Uh, I mean, on that note, I think um, when you look at something like the NBA bubble that just happened, it almost felt to me anyways, on a personal level, like this sort of capitalist force that was going to happen no matter what. And it almost felt to me like I'm, I'm editorializing a question that we got on Twitter here a little bit, but the NBA bubble to me felt like they used the pandemic almost as like a platform to exp basically describe how you just described the way the IOC looks at itself, Jules, as like this beacon of light. Is Is the pandemic going to give, do you think, these organizations an even greater opportunity to posture themselves as that? The question is based off, somebody asked us if, will Canadians even care about how many Olympic medals we get this year? And would the media call them as heroes? And now, while I'm not going to ask you guys that, it does make me think about how the media and sort of all the parties involved have an opportunity to not only call the Olympics, but the athletes who will decide to participate in the next Olympics as the sort of heroes that broke through COVID and participated in this Olymp. Yeah. Any, any thoughts about that sort of uh, notion? Well, I certainly think that that's what the broadcasters of the Olympics are going to try to portray. Um, but mm -hmm. I actually think we're in this fascinating moment where really it's more like a radiologist has injected contrast dye into a body so we can better see like the organs and bones and stuff. <laughs> that's kind of what we're doing. It's like mm -hmm. a big imaging exam that's happening right now. And the Olympics are experiencing that imaging exam. And we can look at the way the International Olympic Committee has handled this sort of postponement and the rollout of these qualifying events, which has been an absolute nightmare. It's not been safe at all. And it seems like we can now see the sharp contrasts and imperfections that plague the Olympic body, if you will. Mm. Um, so we can see that they don't necessarily stand by that idea of athletes first, one of their big slogans that a lot of people get behind. Obviously, athletes aren't first when they're asking them to qualify under these difficult conditions. Um, there's a lot of pushback now among athletes around the world yes. that are wondering what's going to happen if they can't attend a qualifying event because they fear for their lives and fear of getting covid uh, a lot of athletes that I've spoken to uh, that are aspiring to go to the uh, Tokyo 2020 games are wondering if they're going to be forced to sign a waiver that says we won't sue the International Olympic Committee or Japanese organizers. And so there's just such a massive gap. There's such a mm -hmm. massive chasm between the rhetoric of the International Olympic Committee and local organizers and the actual experience that I think has been um, illuminated by our extended COVID moment and people aren't buying that stuff anymore. And if you thought they got away with kind of a miracle with the NBA bubble and the WNBA wobble, try doing this with the Olympics where you have 11,000 athletes, their coaches, the journalists, the members of the international Olympic committee and staff, which by the way, I guess get to go. They've just announced that the other day, they're essential workers to ah. the Olympic movement. Yes. Um, so try doing that. I mean, the Olympics are this audaciously impractical event. That's what some people like about it. But to have an audaciously impractical event like the Olympics during a pandemic moment 
could be um, you know a death spiral for the for the country of Japan. And I'm not even overstating. I mean, this is what doctors mm-hmm. are saying openly in Japan. This is what doctors from the United States are saying openly on places like CNN. This could be a really bad idea. So. I think that the rhetoric is very strong. I think you're absolutely right. And, and they're fervent about it. Mm-hmm. But I think we're living this moment where people are kind of starting to see through it a little bit more too. It's tough with the NBA bubble too, just to get on that point, because the NBA players have a piece of the revenue share as part of their union in the NBA, right? So they have actual motivation for something like this to happen. While with the Olympics, it's almost like it's trying to organize all these rogue Olympi- all these rogue athletes into one place during the worst time to have geopolitical movement across borders this way. It's anyways, I, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Question. Let Sorry. me just say one other thing on yeah. that point is that there was a really good study done at Ryerson university up there in Canada, along with global athlete that looked at the five major sports leagues around the world, including the, the NBA, uh, the EPL, the English premier league of football, soccer in England. And they looked at the amount of revenues that athletes actually got. And when you look at like the EPL, NBA, NHL, um, NFL, they make between 40 and 60% of the revenues that come streaming mm-hmm. through their leagues for the Olympics. You want to guess what it is? You go, if you don't know point point five or point two five. I'm going to go point zero one with wow. the uh, prices, right? With the prices, right? Rules here. <laughs> Did you feel it? Are you feeling in the mood to guess? Or oh, not no, right? I cannot. This was probably a, a trivia question I had to read off at one point. That <laughs> yeah, it's 4.1%. All right. So you, mm, you guys are a little low, but you know the IOC. So maybe that was pre uh, judging there. But so 4.1% compared to 40 to 60% with the NBA and other leagues, like Olympic athletes are getting screwed over economically. And that's basically mm. what the report concluded. And athletes are fully aware of that going into Tokyo 2020. And, you know, they're going to risk their lives to do this because it is their one chance to get on the world stage for some of them. Um, but they are not getting a fair shake when it comes to the revenues of the Olympics. No question about it compared to the other leagues. And this is actually a lead in a great lead into to my next question, because like, you know, yeah, like I work for a labor union. I work for a business union, right? Uh, I wish it was the IWW, and obviously that has a lot of issues. But, you know, Jules, I was struck by your anecdote about unions agreeing not to strike during the 84 Olympics, right? How there was this sort of relationship between business and the people who are supposed to represent, you know, organized labor. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also understand the need for multipolar uh, approach of tactics, right? But I guess this question is about priorities. In order for a permanent end to the Olympics, it feels like there needs to be a permanent threat of withheld labor from the side of athletes and people who are actually the workers participating in the games. Uh, You know, like the no Olympics movement has obviously been very effective, but um, I guess my question is like, what, why start with the grassroots approach um, that goes sort of regionally, you know, city to city rather than a, international approach that starts with organizing athletes something more lateral right that starts with organizing athletes making them aware of issues with the games uh making them aware of what horizons are possible and then pushing for some sort of larger mass athlete uh you know movement that withholds labors of you know for the games or makes them unable to happen because like you know nine of the marquee countries are not participating 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I just don't view it as an either or. I think the anti-Olympics activists and and combined with critical journalists and some academics have really softened up the discourse on the Olympics and really changed it. I mean, it's changed massively over the last 10 years, whereas today you can't uh, put a bid in a city without getting pushback from the local population and various activist groups in town. And so I think that that can happen on one track. And you can also think about organizing athletes on the other track. We're living in an incredible moment of athlete activism, resurgent athlete activism. I mean, never have in my lifetime, and I'm 50 years old, never in my lifetime have I seen anything like this, even approximating what we're seeing now with the political engagement of athletes. So I very much see it possible to happen in, in both at the same time. And after all, when the athletes look out there and they start reading the media, they see some of these uh, journalists writing stories about the Olympics that are critical, quoting people who are in these different movements, quoting academics and quoting other journalists. And so I very much see them moving side by side. I mean, again, it's not like it's going to be easy, especially in the United States, where you know unionization rates are very, very low compared to a lot of other countries. And that complicates things pretty massively. But I, I think those are the two tracks. The third, maybe, is putting pressure on some of the sponsors. We're seeing that right now because the Beijing Olympics are ramping up. They're going to happen in less than a year, uh, supposedly, and they start in February 2022. And there's a lot of pressure on some of those uh, corporate sponsors, which kick in about 18% of the International Olympic Committee's budget. So pressure on those corporate sponsors to basically say, we don't want to, uh, we're not going to condone what's happening in Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs and the production of cotton in the region and so on. Um, so there's pressure on Airbnb and these other places. The only problem is Airbnb is not exactly a paragon of morality uh, based on their business practice. You can, Gigi can probably talk about that all the rest of the night if we wanted to about what's going on with Airbnb and the fight back in LA against it. But those are kind of, in my mind, sort of three of the main tracks to push back against this Olympic machine. But let's not forget this Olympic machine is powerful. It's well-financed. They have billions in the bank and they also have a, a lot of money flowing into their coffers from broadcast revenues, which is another 73% of their revenues. And as I said, 18% from these corporate sponsors and it's big bucks and it's an uphill battle. And it's definitely kind of a David versus Goliath situation. But the fact is um, around the world, we're seeing more and more localities saying no to the Olympics and that spreads. You know, I was on an, an Indian reservation uh, where my daughter is an enrolled tribal member, the Warm Springs Nation over in Oregon a couple of years ago. And I was at an event uh, a feast and I was talking to some people and one of the people introduced me to someone else and they were like, oh, this guy, you know, he does some stuff kind of around the Olympics and stuff. And the guy turns to me and he's like, he goes, yeah, I heard about the Olympics. He goes, um, I heard they're not that great really in the end of the day for when you host them. And I was like, yeah, I mean, word is out, you know, like I've never seen, I've been at the Warm Springs Reservation many times and there are brilliant, brilliant people there, but you're not seeing like the New York Times float through. At least I've never seen a copy in, in the folks that I'm hanging out with. Um, my point is that it's, it's really spread beyond sort of the mainstream media and it's really gotten out there. And lots of people are aware of the fact that the Olympics aren't what they're cracked up to be. And in that kind of moment, uh, there's all sorts of possibilities, especially when there's things that you just can't control, like COVID popping up and, and showing the warts of the Olympic movement. Um, how, who would have predicted that? And with Los Angeles getting the Olympics 11 years in advance, uh, you just had 11 years for stuff like that to happen, let alone the, the regular uh, uptick in, in climate disruption that's happening right now in, in Los Angeles and elsewhere. So that's why I kind of think we're in this propitious moment for overturning the Olympic machine, or at least putting it on its back foot to the point where it has to stop an Olympics from happening. And maybe it's going to be this summer with Tokyo. I mean, the rates of COVID right now are increasing across Japan and other places around the world. 
I can see why 80% of the people in Japan do not want to host the Olympics this summer. I can see why they want to keep people like me and others, not that I'm going, but like people like uh, from the United States and other countries where the rates are high, I can see why they want to keep them out. So, I mean, we're at this really propitious moment, this sort of pivot in the road. And I think there's a lot more that's possible than has been in recent years. I think too, um, you know, you think about the Olympics as a sports um, and, and it, it is a sports issue, um, as, as you were saying with unionizing um, athletes, but it's also more than anything, the Olympics are less of a sporting event and more of a, um, of a land use issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and so because it's a land use issue, at least that's how um, primarily we see it in the Olympics. And um, you really have to start with the people who are want to use the land um, to live on and to have that public space and to have that public use of the land. And um, when you think of the Olympics as a land use issue, then it falls a lot more in with like tenants, um, tenant union organizing. And um, that's a lot of actually what we do in the Olympics. We work with a lot of local tenants unions. We work with um, LATU, um, which is the LA Tenants Union and um, the Lennox Inglewood Tenants Union, because really like the sporting part of the Olympics um, is a few weeks and then the qualifying events. Um, but when you think of all of the stuff leading up to the Olympics, it's an excuse. To, the reason the Olympics are brought into a city is to gentrify and um, to, you know, clean up the city to make it um, more appealing to like, you know, real estate developers. And so when you think of it as a land use issue, um, which I do, um, it makes a lot more sense, I think, to use the approach of organizing the people living on the land. No, that's that's a really good point, right? Framing it around a, a land use first and and athletics as sort of, you know, anchored to that mm-hmm. or or part of it, I think is super key. Um, this is a pretty quick question. Does does no Olympics anywhere also apply to stuff like, you know, Pan Am games or, or international sporting events that don't require the construction of new infrastructure? You know, like, I guess, like, a sort of the bigger question is, you know, are those uh, separate um, from the Olympic issue because they don't uh, sort of hijack the land in such a keen way? You know, sort of, is there a paradigm for what you would describe as, like, a quote-unquote good Olympic Games or, like, a a people's Olympics in our modern uh, paradigm of, you know, hegemonic global capitalism? Like, um, yeah, you know, does, does no Olympics anywhere apply to... Uh, you know, building an alternative or these smaller uh, international sporting events. Uh, mm. I know we have a lot of sports fans who listen to the podcast. So, I mean, I, that's always the tension, right? People enjoy the narrative of sport um, and mm-hmm. are willing to overlook so much, right, when it comes to it. And are always looking for, like, well, what's the ethical alternative? Um, I know in the 1930s, I want to say, um, there were actually, um, that might not be the right year. The there Olympiads. Were... Yeah, there were there were like worker owned um, Olympic. Uh, mm-hmm. I, they wouldn't be the Olympics. It was um, like, but working a worker um, controlled sporting events, and I think that's um, if we were building a better Olympics, that that's something that you can look to in history. There there are um, historical examples of um, of worker owned and um, worker controlled games, and I think too. Um, you just have to look at, I, I don't know too much about the um, Pan Am games. To me, really, the, um, the the looking at it is less the stadium building and more um, what kind of security apparatus are you putting around these games? What kind of um, hotel development? Um, what are you doing to the people who live in the city? Are you having 
and are you are you valuing people who are wealthy and coming in from out of town to come see a sporting event over the people who live in the city? And I think that I, I'm not sure if an ethical sporting event can exist under capitalism. We might need another system in order to have a truly, um, mm -hmm. truly ethical sporting mass sporting event. I mean, here's hoping, right? That's that's also the thesis sort of of our podcast. So. Yes, that, yeah. All sports are unethical, even no matter how much we enjoy them. And I mean, we do. Uh, Jules, what about you? Like, do you think, you know, do you think the Pan Am Games or something like that should be under a similar level of um, of intense scrutiny as uh, or, yeah, you know, the FIBA International Tournament or something like that? Right. Yeah. Interesting question. I think if you if you keep it to the Pan Am Games or the European Olympics, I think there's a strong argument to be made for having the no Olympics anywhere apply to those. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it. I think it's a really innovative question. The reason why I think it probably should be applied is one, they do a lot of similar types of damage to a city and to the already marginalized segments of the city. And, and second, it's kind of like the tryout ground to putting forth an Olympic yeah. bid. So like take uh, the most recent two European Olympics. One was in Minsk, Belarus, and the other was in Baku, Azerbaijan. Uh, Lady Gaga got a lot of flack because she actually performed at the event in, in Baku. Neither of them are paragons of, of democracy and civil liberties, it should be said. Um, but basically what happened afterwards is the leaders of those countries could then turn to the International Olympic Committee and say, hey, look, we pulled off this incredible event. We spent loads of money. There was no security uh, mm -hmm. things that cropped up. We kept it uh, all tamped down. And, you know, hey, when we put forth that bid, I hope you can see that we've already sort of shown. So I think there's a, an argument to be had. That said, of course, we're talking about groups, anti-Olympics groups with uh, relatively small resources. And so a lot of the focus tends to be on the, the local struggle. That's what's been really interesting to me about the last uh, year and a half is that the people from No Olympics LA have teamed up with people from around the world uh, to put together the first ever transnational anti-Olympic summit that was in Tokyo in July 2019. We'd never seen anything like this. I was at a meeting in uh, London in 2012 that had uh, was organized by Julian Shane of the uh, Counter Olympics Network and Games Monitor, and he brought together people from Rio de Janeiro, um, from uh, South Korea, and from uh, England, of course, and also from uh, he brought in Circassians from Russia were also in London, and we all got together, but nothing like what happened in Tokyo with the elaborate kind of connections that have been described as by Gigi previously, and so. Um, in terms of the question about like alternative games, yeah, Gigi is exactly right. Like there were workers games in the 1920s and 30s that were an alternative to the sort of what they call the bourgeois Olympics at that time. And they had a totally different ethos. They had, you didn't have to be like the top flight athlete to participate. You could be a top flight athlete, but you could also have recreational athletics be part of it. I mean, those were huge events, people. They had like more than a hundred thousand people like in marches at the workers games. Like these weren't just kind of like, let's get 10 people together in a park kind of thing. These were like humongous events as were the women's Olympics that also happened during that time period. So from exclusion was born innovation. And in these cases, alternatives to the Olympics, the women's Olympics and the workers Olympics. I mean, let's not forget that when the Olympics started, if you were a worker, you were automatically excluded from the game. So if you were a bricklayer, a, great picker, whatever, uh, you couldn't be part of the Olympics because mm. you got a wage. So, and of course, that opened up the field in the early days of the Olympics for uh, men of leisure because women weren't really allowed very much either. So men of leisure 
rolled in and just like soaked up all the medals and and had a good good old time and that changed through time in a large part because of soccer pretty quick in the early 1900s but still workers were being excluded so i think there's lots of possibilities when i was living in london they had these alternative olympics that were um created by the anti-olympics activists in town they're really fun they were like shot put a tory kind of events and it was actual athletics like they they would do like the 100 meter dash but they were all about political theater and agitprop and like the little um soliloquies between the different events were hilarious and political and organizing people for future events and you know i could see that happening in los angeles i mean this is like the pinnacle of creative people so many of the folks that are in no olympics la are working in hollywood or our writers or our actors or putting out films that are featured on netflix and etc and so they've got like a, a totally high quality film crew like i've never seen with any other previous anti-olympics groups so so much is possible on that front in terms of creating an alternative is it going to be a hundred thousand person worker games that they cook up i don't know that's pretty ambitious but i could see them putting together something pretty awesome and creative that's an alternative to the olympic games in la do either of you watch the games i mean i i'm i'm sort of ashamed but also no ethical consumption under capitalism like it it's impossible for me to not get sucked into the narratives right um and yeah, like I'm, I'm curious. Do either of you watch watch the Olympics when they're when they're happening? I do. Um, you know, I've had the good fortune over the years of meeting an, a number of Olympic athletes who, who, at one point, have say read something I've written and reached out to me, and sort of we developed um, relationships behind the scenes. And sometimes, like, like in, at Rio, for example, one a fencer from Team GB, Lawrence Halstead, uh, left Dave's Iron and I tickets to attend along with Zach Zill. Uh, those games so like yeah i mean i'm not going to say no to some olympian who's uh, spoken out on these causes that i speak out on to to not support them at the olympics mm-hmm. do i follow it like a maniac no i don't i mean honestly when i wrote power games a political history of the olympics for verso the one thing that the editor suggested and i think he was right was we needed to go back through and add more sports like it was hardly <laughs> any sports at all you know and he was totally right as so i went back through and like added some more sports stuff but um you know one thing i, I actually haven't mentioned and i'm not trying to like flex or anything but like despite all the all the kind of um critiques i've been leveling about sports and the olympics i did spend like half my life you know pursuing uh, athletics at a high level i've represented the u.s olympic soccer team in international matches i had a, a professional soccer career so i'm not like this grumpadelic academic with my like elbow patches smoking a pipe and <laughs> hating on sports you know so um so i've watched a little bit but i'm not a maniac about it what about you Gigi? um i have watched the olympics um I well actually I we I, I'm working on um with the film crew we're working on some pieces about the Olympics um and so you know we look through a lot of archival footage especially of the um of the uh opening ceremonies yeah I probably watch it less than you know if like I'm at a bar or something obviously not now with COVID um but and it's on I'm not gonna like you know leave and protest but like I don't I don't it's not really something that I seek out. I, I do love watching gymnastics. Um, when I was at UCLA a few years ago, I was uh, I would go to the gymnastics games like um, all the time, especially, um, you know, when we were doing really well with that. So I yes and no, not really like I have watched it. Um, I watch I, I watch it for non enjoyment purposes. Uh, purely <laughs> academic <laughs> for the articles, so to speak. Uh, yeah. But so, yeah, like and that that sort of leads me to my last question for you, Gigi, which is. 
You know, one of the monumental challenges, like I see from an outsider perspective, uh, but also a huge sports fan, right, in challenging the Olympics is the fact that they create these enormous mythic narratives around athletes and everything athletics is supposed to represent. You know, I, w- I was super invested in the Canadian in the Canadian uh, skating pair at the last Winter Olympics. Like, I was tuning in every minute. Like, I had a parasocial relationship with them, right? Like, the rest of the country. And it's like, how do you compete with an institution that creates these, like, world-grabbing narratives at such a high uh, level, right? That can literally capture the attention of billions. You know, I know you, you've you mentioned in your book, Jules, like, you know, there have been athletes and Olympians brought into the movement, but it really feels like, you know, at its core, what you're really trying to do is, is establish as one narrative as being equally or more important than the one that the Olympics likes to push. It's it's a question of storytelling. And, and how do you ultimately compete with the the incredibly beautifully manufactured, like, you know, level of storytelling that the Olympics uh, and the IOC present, you know, like uh, it, it's maybe it's an absurd or abstract question, but that that I'm sure you must have spoken about that, you know, on, on some level in, in organizing. Um, I think there's a few ways you can look at that. Um, we are creating, um, you know, we create a lot of agitprop. We try and tell other stories. But I, I also think just even thinking about some of the like larger narratives that the IOC and um, the Olympic a- apparatus try to tell, they try and say that the Olympics are about bringing the entire world together um, with sports, kind of like a re- weird world peace thing, even though that's not true. The Olympics really exacerbate nationalism in, in every country. As we've country discussed here. on our podcast, actually, yeah, especially um, in the Israelis when they show up at the Olympics. But yeah, I mean, if you look at like a, a if you look at a chat for um, even the torture, like, the entire chat was just people spamming flags from whatever country they're in. And I mean, that's a, that's a very mild form of nationalism, but it comes from a place of a much deeper um, form of nationalism. Just thinking about um, my comrades who were in Tokyo and all of us coming together across the world to actually build something better, um, regardless of borders and um, nations. I think that's just telling that story, the story of um, people coming together from all over the world to topple a um, a bunch of rich assholes who were on the Epstein plane and are trying to take over our cities and don't care about the little people. I think that's a much more powerful story than um, what the Olympics are telling. I think, you know, stories about a bunch of, you know, bunch of tenants organizers coming together and pushing the olympics out of their city is more powerful than a story that's like oh the american and canadian uh hockey uh players got married or um whatever story i have on saw except except when jamaica got a bobsled team that's yeah. that you can't you can't defeat that story <laughs> well, i, I don't know we can we can get pretty ridiculous too I'm, I'm sure we could think of some pretty ridiculous but i think i think realizing that a lot of the stories that the IOC is telling us are false and that our real stories mm-hmm. are much more um, interesting. Um, they're much more inspiring and they're going to build a better future. Um, I think that's how you fight it. You look into it, you realize that you're being lied to and that the real story is more inspiring and you can be a part of the, the you can be a part of it. Anybody can, anybody can get involved in opposing the Olympics. If you feel like you're starting to see your city council seems like they're, you know, talking to the IOC too much. Seems like they're trying to bring an Olympics to their city. Um, you can start a, you can start an anti-Olympic group and make sure that doesn't happen. 
And that's something the media never talks about with athlete stories either, right? Is the, uh, oh, they had to overcome hardship because they grew up in a low-income, you know, sort of poverty porn, but never, oh, you know, their government gave them $100 to go to the Olympics. They had to go fund me the rest or stuff like that. Like, those are the, the parts of, you know, these people who are competing at the highest level whose stories you you never see because they've been sanitized out of it because, you know, people are going to question the nature of the games at that point. Sort of my last, uh, unless you have anything to add to that, Jules, I have one last question. Nope. I'm good. My last question for you, Jules, is um, you mentioned that the year 20, at the end of No Olympians, you mentioned that the year 2020 was key in sort of creating a paradigm shift around the Olympics, around everything the No Olympics movement represents, you know, the right to land. Do you think, do you think that that idea of 2020 uh, being key is delayed? <laughs> Do you think it was executed on? Do you think it failed? Like, I'm I'm curious as to how that's shaken up a year later, because uh, I know you you definitely were not predicting global pandemic as being you know one of the mitigating factors in your book. Yeah, no, that that's true. Um, I I do think that 2020 was a, a key year in in many respects. I mean, one of those elements was the U.S. Uh, political national election for for president. And I felt like there was a real opportunity for an insurgent left candidate who obviously got scuppered by like the entire Democratic Party that rallied around uh, Joe Biden is that kind of foiled that element of what was special about 2020 from a mainstream politics perspective. But hey, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, they're still insisting on calling themselves the 2020 Olympics. So I can stretch that out to 2021. And you're right. While I couldn't have predicted a pandemic. Um, there's no, there's no question that it has had a major impact on, on everything, obviously, but also the Olympic games. And so I'm going to stretch 2020 to make it the long 2020 historical <laughs> moment. That's going to last through August 3rd, at least if we count the Paralympics even more into September. And I'm going to mm-hmm. kind of stand by that being a really open moment. There's still so much that is in flux with these Tokyo 2020 Olympics with the qualifier events. Are they going to be able to house athletes safely? Uh, What are they going to do about protests that are cropping up all along the Olympic torch route as we speak here today? Um, What are we going to do about the fact that the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee has stated publicly that they support athletes speaking out on the medal stand and taking stands for things like uh, trans lives matter? That was one of the topics they listed or black lives matter. That is setting up a massive clash with the International Olympic Committee when it comes to the um, actual Olympic Games, if athletes are allowed to continue to do that there. And so there's just so much that's in flux right now. And you have a relatively weakened International Olympic Committee that's gotten terrible press for being the uh, rich, privileged sliver of the global 1% that they actually are. And there's so much pushback against them right now. They're totally unpopular in Japan as well. And, you know, I'm, I guess you maybe can tell I'm kind of an optimistic person. <laughs> And I like to think that things are possible. And yeah, I, I'm going to hold on to it at least through the end of uh, July into August. And we'll see what happens. No, that's uh, I'm I'm hopeful. It really does feel like it's the uh, it's the longest year, you know. So I guess we'll yeah. we'll see how it goes. You know, I'm I'm curious as to what. Uh, sorry, what's his name? Uh, Yoshihide, the the new Japanese prime minister or the current yeah, Japanese. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm curious as to as to where he ends up falling on the Olympics compared to you know Abe and Abenomics and all that stuff. Uh, thank you both for being, you know, so generous with your time for for giving us this great conversation. I'll leave it to you to please give your final thoughts. Plug what you need to plug. Um, if you if you do uh, consume sports, please give a shout out to the team that you hope uh, wins X, Y, and Z this year. Uh, since sports are unfortunately ramping up again, 
but yeah, no, please, uh, Gigi, let's uh, let's start with you. Um, well, uh, you can follow No Olympics LA. Um, that's just No Olympics LA on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, uh, though we don't update that as much. There you can follow us and see all of our updates. Um, if you're in Los Angeles and you're interested in organizing, um, we have plenty of opportunities to get involved. Yeah, that's where you can find us. Yeah, and thanks uh, to you guys for hosting us tonight. And it's awesome to be on the same podcast as Gigi. And if you want to learn more about my work, I catalog a, a lot of my essays that I write in more public places at my website, which is just my name, julesboykoff.org. And I'm also on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at julesboykoff. So um, please feel free to reach out. I love continuing the conversation. You are you are an incredibly pleasant Twitter follow compared to uh, a majority of uh, online leftists, Jules. I will say that. Hmm. I've um, never heard that before. Okay. <laughs> or sports fans, for that matter. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you, thank you both so much. Um, really looking forward to this conversation going out in like uh, a month and change. But your time was awesome, and uh, yeah, for those listening, this is the Off Court Podcast. If you like this episode, if you like our engaging, astute, brilliant, beautiful political analysis, and you want to find out more or hear more from people who are almost but not as quite as good as we are, uh, you can you can check out Harbinger's entire cross-country lineup of podcasts. Just kidding. They're very smart and very beautiful and very hot. We love them. Um, you can check out Harbinger's cross-country lineup of podcasts. Get access to exclusive shows and content at harbingermedianetwork.com. And you can check out all the podcasts, all the content, all the awesome work being done at The Mind Refinery online and uh, and all their other stuff at themindrefinery.com. 